0: Hyper Wellbeing, a podcast about the startups, technologies, and people driving a brand new healthcare industry. Healthcare for healthy people. Consumer and data-driven, emerging as devices, apps, mobile, biology, health, and wellness converge. Continuous prediction, prevention, and optimization paradigm. And now, over to your host, D.S. Strybrah.
1: Hello, and welcome to the inaugural Hyper Wellbeing podcast. On today's show, our first ever, we have Brad Perkins. His biography is, Brad is a visionary physician and scientist who recently left a position of Chief Medical Officer at Human Longevity Incorporated, found a new startup, Sapiens Data Science. At HLI, he was responsible for leading all clinical and therapeutic operations, including collecting and utilising phenotype data, development of the consumer clinics business, and guiding stem cell therapeutics. Prior to HLI, he was Executive Vice President for Strategy and Innovation and Chief Transformation Officer at Vanguard Health Systems. Brad started his career at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, in 1989 after completing his residency training and chief residency in internal medicine. He served as chief strategy officer for six years before leaving the CDC in
0: 2009. Hello and welcome, Brad. Thank you very much, Lee. I'm, I'm delighted to be here. Uh, as you know, I'm a big fan of, of um, your hyper well-being construct and a big fan of, of, of you. Um, Uh, as well. So, thank you.
1: Brad, I very much appreciate the kind words and and, uh, the support you've shown for ideas which were very nascent um, a few years ago. And uh, there's been very few people out there who understood in those early stages what I uh, could see and what I was talking about. Let's go back to the position you just left as the Chief Medical Officer of the Human Longevity Institute. What were you doing at HLI
0: and uh, why did you leave recently? So I um, I'm a big fan of Craig Venter's for a long time. We interacted uh, several times. Um, one when I was at CDC, um, I was you know in in my early time at CDC, I was very involved in the last revolution in genomics, which occurred in bacteria. Uh, and unless you were working in bacteriology at that time, it, you may have missed it. But um, Uh, we, um, we provided, um, uh, consultation to Craig Venter in his selection of a haemophilus influenza strain, uh, to, um, serve as his, um, as the bacteria that he did the first whole genome sequence, um, on back in the nineties, it was published in 1995. And then, um, I worked with Craig again. Uh, during the anthrax investigation which I led led after 9/11 and that was the first time that a, a bacteria had been fully sequenced in the context of an active public health investigation so when when I started knocking around uh, after leaving Vanguard health systems back in in um, in 2012 I um, uh, came across Craig and he was just getting ready to uh, start human longevity and um, I got excited enough about what he was doing that, that I joined, uh, joined him as the founding chief medical officer.
1: But how do you feel the genomics revolution has went? My impression was that uh, it hasn't been the, uh, the revolution people were expecting, i.e. a single gene for a single disease.
0: No, I think we'll look back um, at some point in the future, and I hope it's not too long. Um, and, and I think the parallel uh, to bacteriology is a great one. Uh, Fifty years ago in bacteriology, you know, we, we grew bacteria on a plate and we poked and prodded them and put them on slides and see how they stained and exposed them to sugars to see how they metabolize sugars. And, and uh, we would divine from, from that set of phenotypic characteristics um, the identity of the bacteria, and various aspects about pathogenic factors. And fast forward to, to actually is a very brief time in the 90s and, and early 2000s. We went from, from bacteriology as it was practiced 50 or 100 years ago to, to bacteriology being essentially a quantitative computer science. And I actually hired the first pure computer scientist for the CDC's bacteriology reference lab um, right after uh, the 9-11 attacks, actually. And I think if you fast forward that to humans, of course, we had to wait a while for technology to improve to the point that it started to become affordable and um although it may be slower than, than people have expected, I, I actually think it's it's quite remarkably fast what's happening um when you think about the scale and everything that needed to go right to get us to where we are today. But do
1: you think there was too much emphasis on genetics being the determinant of your of your health?
0: You know, my my strong point of view is that Genomics is critically important, but it's not going to be a total uh, answer or solution to to advancing health and healthcare. You know, stated another way, it's going to be part of everything that we do in health and healthcare in the future, but it's certainly not going to be a standalone solution. and And one of my other strong points of view is that there needs to be a much more deliberate effort at integrating genomics with legacy clinical knowledge and demonstrating that the addition of genomics actually improves the performance of models and clinical decision-making. Do you have any opinions, I wonder, on
1: epigenetics, which seem to be the new, I don't want to call it revolution, but the, the I would call it the latest surge in interest genomically.
0: Yeah, it's um, however you want to label it, epigenomics. It's still genomics, and um, you know I think we're we're learning more about how dynamic the genome is in terms of its its expression. And epigenetics is I don't find it a highly useful term to express that that realm of knowledge. I think it's critically important for us to. To get a much better understanding of, of uh, you know, the correlation between linear sequence and and uh, phenotype expression and and health and healthcare, and of course there's there's lots of things that modify the expression of the genome in that in that translation from genomics to phenotype and you know, we clearly need to understand all of them, whether they're labeled epigenetics or not.
1: Well, I appreciate the answer. It makes sense. Jumping ahead, you're now co-founder, director, and CEO at Sapiens Data Science Incorporated. Where and how did you get the idea? I mean, what was the impetus of Flash, the gut conviction?
0: Well, I, um, uh, I, I had a a tremendous experience uh working at human longevity and working with Craig and, and the extraordinarily talented people that that he he uh gathered there i was very involved in building the the health nucleus which was a direct medical services platform that combined whole genomics and other advanced omics with with um advanced imaging i continue to believe that that is the paradigm for the future of health and and healthcare. Um, But after four years at human longevity, I had, I had accomplished what I, what I wanted to, to be able to do there. Uh, The health nucleus continues to be um, a, a main commercial focus of the company. And I hope they're able to scale and continue to, to grow um, that platform. Uh, I left back in November, and um, uh, very excited to have identified uh, two co-founders, Larry Rosenberger, who is a um, important um, part of uh, Fair Isaac Corporation's uh, history. he He served as a CEO um, at at Fair Isaac, also known as FICO, which has been the long-term pioneer in credit scoring. And I met him in the context of his service to the Buck Institute, which is a um, longevity uh, research institute in Marin County. Um, he was looking for a partner to begin applying some of the thinking and tools that FICO had used over the years for credit scoring uh, to health and healthcare. And so we, Larry and I partnered with, with another co-founder, Lou Gurkin a long-time venture capitalist in the Bay Area, um, also a member of the board of trustees at the Buck Institute. All of us got very excited about this being a particular moment in time where we could uh, start to build a new paradigm um, uh, around some of the ideas that that FICO has leveraged over the years, and and blending in. Uh, trends that are that are very omnipresent right now in advancement of genomics and biosensors, as, as well as as consumerism in health and healthcare. Could you
1: uh, meant, tell let people know what FICO is? Because I don't think the majority of people will know. Brad.
0: Yeah. So FICO is um, is uh, the current acronym for Fair Isaac Corporation, a longtime San Francisco Bay. Uh, based startup that that actually has been around since the the late fifties was initially led um, by by the the founders who gave their name to the company, uh, and they decided that um, at a at a at a time that was pretty early, they decided that data and analytics could be used to uh, help businesses make better decisions, and they began the development of a uh, credit scoring algorithm and and a a score that represented the results of that algorithm that has become the, the universal standard in credit risk assessment. And so they now produce billions of these scores across the globe And the scores are used um, in making credit decisions. And there's now a whole family of of these um, scores that relate to particularly common credit transactions, whether it's getting a home mortgage um, or or getting a car loan or a credit card. These FICO scores, um, these credit scores, are are used as, as a standard in the industry FICO is now starting to, to leverage this same notion of, of gathering data from diverse sources and using high-performing algorithms to create scores. Um, in other domains, they recently released a, a driver safety uh, score. Sapiens Data Science is founded on the notion that that um, we can apply some of the same principles that have been used um, in credit scoring to health scoring and, and use that as a way to communicate with, with customers, um, individuals, people and families about their health status.
1: Back at the debut Hyper Wellbeing event, where you were kindly a keynote speaker uh, in November 2016, in the hallway, you were very kind and you had said to myself that you really liked my three pillars of wellness as a service. Uh, blog post: Human-Computer Integration, Redefinition of Health, and Decentralization of Healthcare. Why do you like it so much, and has your view developed between when we spoke in the hallway?
0: I think, uh, Lee, you've done a fantastic job of of catalyzing things that I've been thinking about for a long time, um, and doing it in a in a way that that is understandable and, and compelling. I feel like the The company that we're building uh, as Sapiens uh, Data Science is um, is partly catalyzed uh, by this this construct, um, and and I uh, you know I would hope that that you would see that as as um, as you begin to see some of our products come to to market. We're we're firm believers on on the human computer integration that the health and healthcare system needs to move from its current qualitative clinical practice modality to a, um, you know, a firm data science foundation. And there's an incredible opportunity to do that. Um, and, and that, you know, on redefinition of health, you know, there's an incredible amount of science that's available to start that engine, um, and, then, and then move increasing control to uh, individuals and families uh, for continuous monitoring and, and um, protection of, of their health, improvement and protection of their health. But you mentioned that
1: medical practice today is very qualitative. So what you're really saying, there's a large
0: gap in what could be done, if I put it politely. I think there's, there's two huge gaps. One is, is the generally poor decision-making, which has repeatedly been demonstrated in the current uh, healthcare system um, because, you know, we're, we're constrained by the way our, our brains operate. Um, so, so generally poor decisions are made um, because they're not based on the level of data that could be available. But the other dimension that I'm really concerned and disturbed by is the, the, the time gap uh, between the availability of, of scientific evidence and the broad-scale medical use uh, or healthcare use of, the, uh, of, of those pieces of evidence. And uh, Lee, as you know, and as we've discussed... Um, it's been repeatedly me- measured in in a number of developed countries that that gap is about 17 years with you know expected variation around that sort of median number but that's just not going to work um, in the place that that we're moving um, and and unless we have very different platforms to protect and improve people's health we're just going to get further and further behind of where the science is and uh, we'll have more and more missed opportunities for people to to protect and improve their health. Are you building
1: a cloud-based um, supercomputing service, which is going to only work for the upper ech- echelons of society?
0: No, I don't think so. Um, I certainly hope hope that's not our the outcome um, certainly not the intent. Uh, I I actually think that we have a tremendous opportunity to do um, for health and healthcare what what mobile phones did for communication in in in, um, in less developed uh, economic settings where where many countries had the opportunity to to skip the landlines. And go straight to to cell phones and increasingly smartphones, and and I'd like to see many countries have that opportunity uh, with with platforms like like the one that that we're building at Sapiens Data Science. And I, I think all the pieces are increasingly available. You, we can't, you know, Lee. I don't think we can jump immediately to that solution. And you know, the the challenge is sort of how do you. How do you get from here to there and and um you know while you're building a sustainable business? But I think uh utilities like the one that that I know you imagine are within near term reach. Personally,
1: I think uh you're gonna end up I don't mean you personally <laughs> Uh, but the industry, you're going going to end up with uh, different plans according to your income. You could be paying 10 bucks a month to 100 to 10000 a month if you have the money, and the computing will be run against it. Health is our greatest asset, and I think that the more money one has, the more one will be willing to pay a monthly fee to
0: protect and improve uh, one's health and family health. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. And I like your analogy to financial services. I, I, as you know, I think the uh, financial services market, the way it has been shaped, is actually a very good analogy for where we're going with with health and healthcare. If you take a look at a company like Schwab, and you're interested in getting some help managing your portfolio, you can. They have three broad terms of of um, Three broad categories of offering: one is machine alone, the other is is a little bit of a human and a machine, and the other is all human. and And um, you know, they're priced according to the cost of of delivery of those services. I think increasingly we'll see health and healthcare offerings along those same dimensions.
1: I can only concur there. It's why I'm also envision. I don't think that healthcare today does a great job on prediction, Uh, and I definitely don't think it does a great job on prevention. It did great in the 20th century with bacteria and viruses, you know, the whole public health thing. In fact, it it did fantastic. But in the 21st century, it's not meeting the needs of 21st century diseases, i.e. lifestyle chronic diseases. And I firmly believe that there's a new adjacent healthcare, a secondary healthcare beginning to emerge, at least at the seed stage. And it's one built in the paradigms of prediction, prevention, and optimization. And I don't think the existing healthcare should deal in that space. The Existing healthcare should remain for sick people and injured people. What's your position on that, Brad? Do we need a secondary healthcare? Will it be separate?
0: I think it's it's... Really, an interesting uh, question, Lee. I, I I'm not sure how it will how how it will shape shape uh, or how it will end up being shaped in the marketplace. I think there is a a high a reasonably high likelihood that that you'll be right that you'll see sick care break off from other health services that are focused on prediction, prevention, and optimization. And you know, uh, you know that's probably more likely than not, uh, to be honest with you. But what I'm really confident of is that there is now an extraordinary opportunity in prediction, prevention, and optimization. And I don't see anybody uh, really executing with a with the kind of vision in mind um, that that. That I think would would get us there quickly um, in the marketplace you know today, yeah, you excite me there, Brad, because for
1: me, this was just like pre android two thousand and six when I was seeing the the uh, people putting Linux on mobile phones and doing their own <laughs> mobile Linux, and I could see what was coming. Then I saw the Android specs, and I was just blown away, and once again, I saw something as exciting, but this time much more meaningful. For myself, I used to be interested in mobile, but now I see mobile is the the hub of future health. And as you're, you, you're, we're totally aligned: prediction, prevention, optimization. There's people doing pieces, but it's all siloed type stuff, and there's no like industry umbrella to take it together and to catalyze it. And this is why I started the
0: show. Yeah, I think you're you're on an extremely exciting track, and uh, I'm. Going to be eagerly awaiting your future guests, and um, I think this has a a really long and interesting runway. Yeah, I think over the next two three years, you're
1: you're going to enjoy a few of the guests. I have a, a few more lined up. Anyway, prediction, prevention, optimization—do uh, you agree? It's more of a computer and data science
0: than what we would term medicine today. Absolutely. So, medicine today is is you know, qualitative clinical practice. And, you know, there's the only word I'm comfortable with among those three is the clinical part. I'm I'm very uncomfortable with with qualitative um, being applied to the kinds of of, of high risk decisions that that physicians are 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 making on behalf of, of individuals. And, you know, Certainly, uh, practice is a suspicious term as well. Um, I I do think, though, I may, may have a little bit of difference in opinion with with the role of of the physician, and I think there's going to be a prolonged, very constructive period where where physicians and other health professionals. And I say that because I'm 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 very interested and committed to behaviorist becoming a bigger part of of health and healthcare are are going to be partnering with machines to optimize um, outcomes and and I think that a partnership between humans and machines is going to allow humans to move up you know Maslow's hierarchy of health, if you will. Um, and begin to connect the things that people need to do in the, in the health realm with with larger purposes in their lives. And I think it's going to be really a long time before we have computers that are going to be able to play that that vital role. And so I, I'm not I'm not counting doctors out of the game anytime soon.
1: But it's a different type of doctor. Because if I was to quote you from the event um, of mine that you spoke at, you said, if I, I read out here, medicine has traditionally been a clinical science that's been supported by data. We are rapidly approaching a time when medicine is about to become a data science supported by clinicians. So that means we need an
0: entirely new breed of clinicians? I think so. Um, and, you know, I, I still stand by that that comment. But but I probably I'm I'm highly inclined to to not dismiss the role of humans in, in working with other humans, particularly where behavior change is involved. And and we're in an awkward period right right now where in in many dimensions we live in a in in environments that are pretty toxic to our health. And and to overcome that toxicity, um, you have to you have to be pretty behavioral, behaviorally uh, res, resilient, if you will. And you know my my experience personally, and and watching other people is is behavior is most likely to change in the context of human relationships, um, and and not. Not necessarily machines alone. I, I definitely agree with that. You know, with the whole BJ fog, etc. Yeah. So I want both, uh, Lee, and and I think it's going to be an exciting ride. Leroy Hood uh, said that he
1: thinks within a decade what he calls scientific wellness, a a term I actually came across after putting the hyper well-being thing together, which uh, seemed to be the same paradigm shift. It just had a lot put more emphasis on people and was missing a, a couple of elements. He said that. He thinks the scientific wellness, as he had termed it, rather in hyper well being, uh, will have a greater market cap one day, and he was speaking like uh, within a decade than today's healthcare, i.e., sick care. Um, do you think that the the wellness industry, the scientific wellness, that data driven um, wellness industry, is likely to be have a higher market capitalization than healthcare today?
0: I would agree with Lee. Uh, you know, big, big fan of, of, of Lee's and, you know, he's one of my heroes and, um, I think he's, he's on the right track and, and, um, the things I've heard him talking about over the years are, are also very consistent with, with the, um, construct that, that you've been building at, at Hyper Yeah. And the
1: difference, I, I, must admit, I come from a much more machine device software, um, viewpoint Because when Lee first raised this, I think this was 2003, looking back, you know, there wasn't AI and it's not been his industry, whereas my background has been computer science. And I more saw the rise of the machines. And also I see the cost of healthcare going up, and I see that healthcare isn't aligned with the individual's health. And I actually don't see that changing anytime soon in healthcare. So consumer devices and software obviously... A conduit, and also it drives costs down because people don't scale. In in my viewpoint, in a decade or two, you're looking at uh, an end outcome of what I term the machine knows best rather than the doctor knows best. I trust algorithm with your life choices, and this ties into what you said about uh, behavior change to live longer and healthier. But do you think ultimately we're going uh, far more um, less top down, far more decentralized? far more consumer driven and far more trusting of the algorithm and the machines. Absolutely.
0: But my caution is that I I'm trying to think of, of ways to get leverage to move there as fast as possible and I think to to move there fa- as fast as possible you've got to bring early adopting elements of the existing health enterprise into the construct. And one of our lessons early in Sapien's data science is that to get to scale with the platform that we're trying to build, people are telling us they want their doctor involved. And so we are, you know, we're building a platform that I think honors your your desired direction at Hyper Wellbeingly. But I'd like to wire you know early adopting physicians into the process, believing that there are are there are some small admittedly small proportion of them that that would like to come on this journey um, as well, and it's not going to be all of them but but some of them will want to come along and that if we if we take that approach we'll end up getting getting to where I think people are best served faster than than um, taking a a uh, uh, taking different approaches. Well, I
1: hope that you do manage to get a fair percentage, Brad. At the moment, GPs or uh, primary care physicians, from my experience, they're actually even lacking in what I would term basic statistical knowledge. So they often confound, say, relative and absolute statistics even to their patients, which is kind of diabolical, i.e. a statin for a given patient may give them four days extra life, yet have a whole host of side effects. So from my experience, the average physician, uh, primary care physician, is lacking in stats. And also things like uh, all-cause mortality, i.e. take a statin, and uh, yes, it might reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease, But it then increases something else. You know, they don't look at all-cause mortality. I I find that they're overwhelmed, have short time with patients, and it's really a data problem, and they're not doing very well with it.
0: Uh, I would agree with that. But ironically, I think the way to transition primary care physicians or or GPs to a firmer data science-based foundation is to work with consumers. And, and have consumers bring their physicians along, uh, those that are willing, along, along on this journey. So many people that are doing what we're doing in Sapiens Data Science right now have the engine pointed at the healthcare system. And I ultimately think that's going to be less effective um, in the long term than, than building an engine uh, like the one you'd like to see in the world and pointing it at consumers. So, so you know, that that's what we're doing. at Sapiens Well, that Data sounds Science. very strategic. And
1: it sounds by a guesstimation that it's more likely to work. And obviously you're touching the marketplace and I guess you're already getting all the signals and potentially some traction. I don't know how much you're able to uh, reveal, but I assume you're getting what we'll term mar- solid marketplace signals to make that decision. Um,
0: i yeah I hope that's true um but we're we're certainly reacting to to consumer centered design work that we're doing uh and interpreting those signals in regard to product market fit and and you know the dynamics are real for a venture backed startup in terms of getting traction and getting early revenue and uh, you know. That capital is essential to being able to to build build out the the long-term vision. Well, I platform.
1: appreciate you sharing those signals, which takes me on to something else you had said at my event. You'd said, it's unlikely that this revolution is going to be led by the incumbents in healthcare. And one of my beliefs right now is that the one giant industry which is incredibly well-aligned is life insurance. And life insurance has an opportunity, I think, to birth this industry, what I've termed hyper-well-being. And I think that the future of health and healthcare is actually going to be more like wealth management and asset management than what healthcare looks like today.
0: Can you uh, elaborate any on that, Brad? Lee, thank you. I'm glad I said that. I still I still stand by that. I, um, I've had you know, I've deepened my experience with the life insurance industry and the reinsurance industry. Um, And, you know, it's, it's not sure. I'm just not convinced that the incumbents in that, in that space are, are are going to make the transition. I am, you know, um, very interested in watching a company called health IQ um, that's getting some traction um, around brokering, deals among health conscious consumers and life insurance companies to get reductions on their life insurance premiums but it seems like a pretty small step and i believe it's very frustrating to me i believe the life insurance industry could actually own this this industry that that you describe so eloquently around prediction prevention and optimization they even have the you know a, a large part of the right workforce in place they certainly have the plug-in to the financial services um, industry and and you know the value proposition of life insurance that extends life seems really compelling you know particularly to millennials potentially where where Life insurance is not a growing business sector. So, still believe it, Lee. Uh, what I said, but but I'm still still looking for the from the signal for the signal in the market. I don't know
1: if you're able to say anything here. And again, I don't want to feel I'm pushing you into my words. But healthcare today is not aligned to the individual's health. I mean, it's hard not to laugh at that. I mean, if health is our greatest asset, but healthcare is not aligned to our health. And I don't see any way to fix the current system.
0: Well, that's right. And I used to start out my meetings with, with senior executives in, in the life insurance industry and make that point that I would rather have as an individual. And for my family, I'd much rather have life insurance involved in my health and healthcare than I would my healthcare company. I mean, my health, my healthcare insurance company and, you know they are always sort of startled by that, but I'm at least very confident that that life insurance is is highly aligned with extending my 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 productive life. Um, and I say productive life because not only do they want me to to live long, um, but they want me to continue to make my payments. So in order to to do that, I have to you know live long and. And productively, I think it's a great alignment, in, but so far it's being squandered. What about health insurance? Because it seems quite happy just to take 15%
1: margin, you know, and keep throwing invoices around and taking 15%. I don't see how that how health insurance begins to align under that model of taking
0: 15%. Well, first of all, uh, you're going to touch on an area that I find really frustrating. I mean, credit card transaction fees are in the range of 2 to 3%. That's, that's actually how the health insurance industry should, should function for what it does right now because, as you know, at least in the United States, administrative services only is sort of the model and uh, what health insurance companies are doing is claims processing. So to get 15% for that is, is really frustrating. I, I, don't, I don't see how they can get aligned um, unless they're actually at financial risk. And and they're generally not. So so I don't see a lot of, a lot of hope w- with the alignment.
1: There is a lot of excitement about precision medicine. I understand that. But in my opinion, I'm more excited about what I would term precision lifestyle. You know, a lifestyle is in alignment with, say, your epigenetics, with uh, your microbiome. Because by having a precision lifestyle, this is something computed, uh, you're far less likely to need medicine in the first place.
0: Uh, I would agree with you. Um, it's just that, uh, in terms of noise in the marketplace, it's, it's hard for, for everybody to, to, to sort of, uh, understand the distinction that you're making that I think is extremely, extremely valid. But, but, um, I think, uh, that will be a, probably a generational phenomenon. Um, but but I think yeah, it, will it seems come. to be the uh, people have been schooled. The health is uh, predetermined
1: at birth. That seems to be one major issue in, in, in cultural consciousness.
0: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think that may be true. Um, and you know, the whole it's it's a, actually a, a pretty distinctly Western idea that you can control your destiny. Um, but I think it hasn't. Although it may be accepted in Western cultures uh, from sort of an economic or social perspective, I don't think people really get that that's going to cross over into the health realm and you are going to have more and more opportunity and more and more responsibility to monitor, monitor, protect, and improve your health.
1: Yeah, and, and and we're not talking like a letter in a mail or a quick chat with your physician. We're talking about real-time, kinda of on your wrist type life guidance. Make this choice, else we shave or else you're shaving seven days off your life type thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I you and I have talked about um our our mutual experiences using continuous glucose monitors and you know, that's been pretty mind-blowing for me to tighten up those feedback loops on, on what you're eating. and uh,
1: Yeah, it's amazing behavior change. We know Apple's coming out with a glucose device and a few others, um, which will make it mass adoption. And they talk about using it for sickness, i.e. diabetes. But once you're continually measuring glucose, and I believe that glucose as a proxy for insulin is the main, uh, I would say the main driver behind most chronic disease that we have today. Uh, Insulin spikes and high insulin levels. And I think that once you can see on your wrist, I know from my own experience that I change my eating patterns. I go for a walk after eating because, hey, it's a a bit too high after eating. Or I have uh, gaps or I eat less. But once I see that number every day and I know what the values mean in terms of longevity, I, I start, as you said, closing those feedback loops and I start adjusting behavior. The issue I think we have today is people are blind to what's happening in their blood sugars. Like if you're out at night, you wouldn't be adding the Coca-Cola to the um, uh,
0: alcoholic drink if you could see yeah. what it's doing or drinking that Red Bull. Yeah. So I'm a big believer that we need to... You know, we need to broaden the adoption of, of uh, these technologies to certainly people with prediabetes, and then and then out get out there beyond that. And you know, I put these monitors on my my adult children, and you know, they had the same response that that I did: is is like, why it doesn't have. Why doesn't everybody have this kind of information? Absolutely, Brad. And I'm wondering myself. Mainly, glucose plus a few
1: other biomarkers are going to become available, and I think we need them all the time. It's part of that path of human computer integration. Yeah, real time biomarkers.
0: Yeah, and it almost serves. You know, it's a big. We're we're facing this challenge in sapiens data science right now. Is, you know, getting uh, passive. Uh, data on what people eat and drink is extremely challenging, and i've been thinking a lot about well how much is is continuous glucose monitoring you know a pretty darn good proxy for what you're eating and drinking do Do we really need to innovate you know aggressively in in the in the food area or can we use proxies like like continuous glucose monitoring, maybe the microbiome, maybe global metabolomics to actually know what, what's going on with ED. Yeah, and
1: uh, uh, it takes me to ask a question um, on the side here. Do you also see a rise in direct-to-consumer lab testing? Because although we'll have devices that gather more data, I personally see uh, ever-rising direct-to-consumer lab testing, and that takes in a whole bunch of new data. Uh, into the cloud potentially to guide your life. So do you see a rise of DTC?
0: I do. I do on on the lab testing. And of course, you know, I think the entire regulatory environment is is shifting in ways that are quite remarkable given, particularly given our level of dysfunction and some other dimensions, But, but, you know, the U S government has been consistently driving for, for, you know several important areas. One is, you know, individual control of data, um, which is a big deal. Health, health, and healthcare data. Uh, individual control over access to laboratory testing, which which I think is overdue and 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 really fantastic. And then, you know, with the 21st Century Cures Act that was was passed right right before President Obama left office, I'm really encouraged around. Uh, the support uh, it provides for clinical decision support and also, in particular, for patient decision support. Guidelines that have recently been articulated for software as a medical device, I think, are extremely exciting and supportive steps for the industry that you and I would like to see develop. Well, appreciated
1: for that insight. I, um, I I can't remember if I ever said, I, I think I did, and I'll only briefly mention it here. I didn't feel good. I had no healthcare because I hadn't completed paperwork. It would have been free if I had. I was in a second world country. And I was able to walk into a lab and order any test a doctor could and get it back the same day electronically. So I walked in, said I didn't feel good. I took a bunch of tests, said my glucose was high. I didn't really know what glucose was. I knew it was something to do with diabetics. And, you know, and then I said, hey, am I able to change this? I said, hey, your food changes it. I thought, will I sign up for healthcare, or will I play with the data? So I thought I'll play with the data. So I just kept eating different things, going back and doing the test again every day. And eventually I reversed my type 2 diabetes. I, I say eventually, it only took me two months. And I felt better than ever. I lost all the weight, sharper mind, slept better. Simply had the macro and nutrient ratios wrong in my diet. I had high-carb a healthy carb, I might add vegan. And then I went high fat and low carb and suddenly uh, I was the best shape of my life and best mental performance of my life. And I just saw it as a data problem and solved it within two months, never thought anything of it. Then two years later, that's when I began to discover, hey, healthcare wouldn't do that. I haven't been to the doctor in 17 years. So Um, and so I really don't know what a doctor would do. I have many doctor friends. And when I speak to them, I don't feel it would be of use to me unless I had a bacterial infection or something or an injury. And then I'd be greatly appreciative. I had access to my body data and what I started doing was walking into, after I solved the diabetes, I started thinking, what else can I improve? So I started walking into the lab, ordering tests I had no name of and studying blood chemistries. And I started, uh, for example, I test magnesium. Magnesium RBC, I might add, because it's a standard test and doesn't tell you anything at the order, and uh, only that you can keep homeostasis of magnesium. So then, when I noticed I had low magnesium, I took magnesium, and wow, I had sense of wellness. And then the same thing with vitamin D three. I felt oh, like I hadn't felt in fifteen years. I had more energy, could get off the sofa quicker, whereas before I always had lag and. Hey, I just fell into this. I, and I've I've not stopped looking at body data and understanding blood chemistries, etc. And uh, so that brings me on the question that in 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 many countries you can just walk in and get it pretty cheaply in the email to use you, your right. Nobody asks you a question. Um, I find it very unusual in the US.
0: It, it can be hard to obtain your own body data. No, I total agreement with you. And um, I think that's that's going to evolve um, quickly. I, lo- I I I I love the fact that you know that less developed economies may may uh, innovate more quickly in this space than more developed economies. And, yeah,
1: it's fantastic. But I ended up seeing markers later on which can indicate liver cancer, uh, etc. And I suddenly thought, God, this is quite alarming. They just emailed me this, like the raw data. But I like the freedom and the liberty and the personal choice involved. Anyway, to move things along at that event, just a final quote um, from you. You had said people are dying unnecessarily as a result of the current medical model. And I think we can fix or begin to fix that in the near term. So let's just be clear. People are dying unnecessarily because of today's model
0: yes I think they are um, in large numbers and it's something really disturbing to me um, one of our areas of, of focus at sapiens data science is to build a set of next generation um, risk models of four diseases that are associated with premature mortality and i I talked about these data at at your first hyper well-being conference but I, the, the, this particular uh, framing of of a problem is is not it's not easily at hand for most people. But for for men in the United States in twenty sixteen, uh, between the ages of fifty and seventy four, um, the cumulative mortality rate is a third, and for women, it's a quarter. So just to be clear, these are people that reach 50 years of age, but, but uh, don't get to 75. And so every one of those uh, deaths is a tragedy for, for the families and communities involved. Um, My father was one of those deaths was sudden cardiac death. um, When he was around 60, we can, we can do much better now. And, and the, the, thing the opportunity that is near at hand is to profile people for the 27 or so leading chronic age related chronic diseases that are associated with those premature deaths and and it's really these 27 conditions that are responsible for 90% of that premature mortality and we can build models relatively easily right now that allow a, a personalization of risk, provides a basis for accelerated screening and early detection of these conditions, and more aggressive prevention. So w- there's a lot of people out hand-waving around longevity right now. For me, this is the place to start. And when I see you know a third of people dying in that age group, a quarter of women, that's a big fat target that that I really want to go after at scale and um, that's one of the things that we're doing do you describe Satan's yourself as science. a
1: predictive analytics company ie you're skipping the sexy label of
0: AI uh, yes I definitely so uh, my one of my core hypotheses and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna talk in too much detail because this is areas that we're following intellectual property is that the world has fundamentally changed in terms of data availability for prediction, and um, and you know we're trying to take advantage of of, of that change, and I, th- I I think it's just completely it's a completely overlooked opportunity by the by the current healthcare system to change and remarkably improve the lives. I kind of want to jump scale.
1: into many topics here. I'll try to restrain myself. By the way, uh, you mentioned Health IQ earlier. They're on uh, the guest list
0: later on. Good. Uh, Delighted to hear that. They're on my list to talk about potential partnerships. Small
1: world. I see you recently put a hello world website for Sapiens DS. So I take it um, you can't reveal uh, many details at the moment. When can we start to expect to see consumer product?
0: We plan to be in um, validation studies with... um, a number of ecosystem partners, uh, sort of at a scale of one to five thousand people, to really look at some of our early products, uh, which will be focused on mortality risk reduction, and we'll be looking at two dimensions. One is is consumer adoption, and the other is is measurable health impact in terms of mortality risk reduction. So um, we we you know. Uh, late this calendar year, early calendar year, um, I hope that we're able to share results of those uh, of those validation studies, and then and then we would look forward to scaling uh, uh, towards the middle. Uh, I, I look year. forward to that for obvious reasons. I see
1: that Jim Mellon uh, is a. I laugh because I'm super excited about what you're doing. I see that Jim Mellon uh, is an advisor, and he co-authored a book I read this year um, called "Juvenescence: Investing in Agile Longevity. And I, I like the title because I'd concluded uh, early this year that the biggest investment opportunity over the next decade is actually longevity and biological aging. Uh, would you like to elaborate any on why you've got him as an advisor and also why I see so many connections with the, the Buck Institute?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jim Mellon is uh, is um, is an advisor, but he also importantly is an investor. You know, was uh, part of our first round of capitalization of the company, which which were we were really delighted to have him because of of the level of commitment he's got to the space right now, and and um, you know he brings a lot of dynamic energy and and credibility to to the space, uh, from an investment perspective. Um, and, and so I would urge people to take a look at his book, um, and to take a look at the, 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 the field of longevity, um, more closely as, as, a extraordinary opportunity. Have you you noticed uh, that on the the biological
1: aging side, people have only been looking at, say, pharmacological uh, interventions, but they haven't been looking uh, at intervening in terms of biological aging using what I would call digital therapeutics. Uh, You can guide lifestyle such as to slow or reverse somewhat biological aging. You don't need a a, a drug
0: to achieve that. Uh, I don't know if you've uh, thought of that. Um, That's a, that's an unintended consequence of the way that the marketplace is set up and life sciences companies are structured to, to, um, you know, identify new therapeutics in the form of drugs. And so, you know, there's tremendous progress being made there. But I, I totally agree with you that there's, that that misses a huge opportunity that, that is, that is, is, is closer to hand. And, and you know, it's fairly dramatic in Alzheimer's. There's fairly good, good information that a variety of lifestyle uh, factors are responsible for substantial proportions of, of Alzheimer's. Um, but, you know, the, the almost the exclusive focus for most of the industry is on finding a drug when I think we could make a lot of progress with yeah, lifestyle. like uh, feed
1: people fats, healthy fats, and lower their uh, processed carbohydrates. And also in Alzheimer's, it's also
0: one of these, like diabetes, you can predict up to a couple decades away. Uh, absolutely. And, and that's one of the things that we were working on at Human Longevity that I think has tremendous potential and, and really um, demonstrates the potential of, of, of combining genomics with advanced imaging. Okay, so uh, Sapiens
1: uh, DS, as I'll call it if that's okay with you, uh, is about measuring health status. I remember for the event I did, uh, the end of 2006, I realized that health quantification is essential for this new industry being called hyper well being. And so I invited Qualth and Dakadu to come and speak. And they also assign a health score uh, on the mobile. But what you and Dakadu sell to uh, do insurance partnerships with it. But what you plan to do is something superior
0: and uh, further reaching. Well, we're, we want to do that at the speed of science, and that's the commitment that, that we're going to make to our, our customers, is, is to close that 17-year gap between the emergence of evidence and, uh, and, and um, broad-scale clinical use. And so it's, it's very different. We also have a, a big commitment to, to um, cutting-edge use of genomics and other advanced biologic measurement and, and devices so we're we're using we're using the score as a mechanism to get to a fundamentally new place. I see um, some of the other companies in the space using a score to to you know be the value proposition in a in a consumer facing business, which is fine. But we're we're doing Do you doing think you'll score there. different
1: bodily systems instead of just one one score? Shall we say?
0: The uh, I think uh, we're really what we're what we're doing is is starting with scores, um, and we'll have a family of scores that are built around general general health in a in a variety of dimensions, and then specific diseases. Where I really want to get to is I, I want a machine utility that sits quietly in the background of people's lives and prioritizes what steps that they can take to uh, protect and improve their health uh, at any period of time they want to devote bandwidth to, to doing that and um, you know we don't have anything close to that right now but I think I think the pieces are out there to put that together we can't jump there immediately but but that's where we're we're headed and I, I think you know, I think I like the Amazon Prime price point of $119 a year right now as is, is, is the kind of price point that you could have that, that health curation um, support running in the background of your lives um, at, at very large scale and have it getting better. Yeah, because today people are
1: googling like uh, googling up uh, health information and looking at likes of webmd and that's kind of 1990s compared to what you're talking about.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I I mean I, all the pieces are out there to build the platform that that I just described it's just a question of you know, how do you how do you get from here to there from a business perspective and uh, you know, how do you how do you build the talent um, to build it, and it the most certainly seems that, that you, well, I can only agree that you've identified
1: uh, what, what I'll term a green uh, space of exceptional value. And I'm I'm chuckling to myself here that the space seems so open. I'm I'm, I'm still kind of surprised at um, the lack of people that I'm aware of entering into that space so clearly. Which brings me on to a question: How how does uh, Sapiens DS compare to Arivale and Health Nucleus?
0: One of the things that we're we're doing in our platform is is it's not just about a score. We we actually have a way to communicate with with people that includes a score and then what we call signals, which are are the disaggregated components of those scores that they can actually work on to to improve or maintain. And then we, we have a services linkage so it, it, our paradigm is is built around scores signals and services and and health nucleus and area are, are are good examples of the kinds of services that we would like to link people to on our platform and and um, same thing with you know with the lavangos and the omadas and you know probably moving forward the Verdas of the world pointing people to services like that when they could when they could benefit from, from those particular interventions um, again, it has a very long runway and, and, you know, most of the most valuable companies in the world right now have that sort of platform uh, model. You know, we want to be really good at the data science element of this and, and running the platform at the speed of science. We're, we're not going to actually deliver the kinds of interventions that Arival or the Health Nucleus or and or Lavango are actually delivering, but but we want to facilitate the connection of those services.
1: Okay, uh, thanks for that. Uh, my uh, event, you also had said uh, with HLI, you were pushing uh, limitations of cloud computing. You'd spoke about HLI using twenty four petabytes of data on Amazon and running queries. I don't think they were capable of handling in the, in the time manner, time sensitive manner. You need them is Sapiens DS also a company that's uh, pushing limitations of biology and computing?
0: Not right now. Um, We're going to stay, you know, you know, human longevity was really operating at the, at the edge of what was possible in a discovery mode. Um, We're going to, it's Sapiens. And I, you know, I was, you know, I'm very stimulated by that. I think that's critically important. Um, at at Sapiens Data Science, I'm I'm really we're, we're built we're built around turning validated science into action on behalf of people. So we're going to be a little bit further downstream, and and using technologies that are validated and uh, have sort of reached the level of, of affordability that, that allow them to be scaled. So a little further downstream than than where human longevity was or is. Does systems biology fit in anywhere, Brad? Absolutely. So um, uh, we just hired a new chief science officer whose training is in you know, bioinformatics and systems biology. This is this is it's going to be the name of the game going forward, and and trying to surf the edge of what's what's validated and also we think we have an opportunity with sapiens to to do some crowdsourcing as well to to make it easier for people to build algorithms and access publicly available data sets to validate those algorithms and 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 stay at the edge of what's possible uh, in systems biology and right now the the supply chain for high quality clinical algorithms is in the medical literature is sort of broken. And, you know, people throw those up, you know, from academic and other organizations, but they often don't go anyplace. So we think we can one help to reconcile and improve that supply chain by getting those out, out to consumers. And then two, we think we can, you know, since consumer needs, for various algorithms and and then crowdsource those um, and do it in a in an open you know um an open environment so that the algorithms can be uh accessed and improved upon in real time but i see we're running over
1: time here so i would love to just jump in uh, just for fun at the end of our call do you have any uh, personal health recommendation, any routine, anything you do in the morning, any little bit of religious behavior you have for your health? It can be data-driven. It can be superstitious. It can be a supplement, food, exercise, a data point you measure, a device you wear. Just, Do you have one or two um, health recommendations that you yourself follow?
0: No, I, I, um, I would strongly recommend that people – uh, get a hold of of um, one of the continuous glucose monitoring devices. I think it's it's right now the 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 most compelling example of what the future is going to look like in in tight feedback loops for critically Im- important physiologic data. I'm a big fan of the the Apple Watch, and um, uh, we built our first prototype over the top of Health Apple's Health Kit. And so I've been doing a lot of experimenting with, with uh, as a prototype for the company, with downloading um, my formal medical data, and of course capturing my informal uh, health data, you know, exercise and such from Apple Watch, and and pushing pushing that uh, technology construct to the limit. So I would I would urge others to experiment and fool around with that and. And let me know how it goes.
1: Yeah, and the continuous glucose monitors, I, I concur with you. On the continuous glucose monitor side, that's been my also my first biggest win. And why discovered with that is the these ideas of hey, it's your volume of carbohydrates which exactly match to your glucose is just not true. Yes, it's approximate. It could be half. But the other half is very individualized. It, it, it seems, according to, for example, uh, the company day two, uh, a lot of the individualization of glucose uh, response is your gut bacteria, your, your actual microbiome. So, for example, in, in my case, if, if I eat fish, um, it raises my glucose, and I've checked the corresponding insulin, uh, levels um, more than what candy does. So, you know, um, but I'm disappointed at the market today only pushing, you know, Dexcom and uh, Abbott and so on, only pushing CGMs for sick people. Um, uh, But I'm sure that just as App Store came along for Android and iPhone, I'm absolutely certain that glucose, continuous glucose, plus a few other measurements are going to be the foundation data points of what we'll call new apps and new algorithms that compete with each other, decentralized, uh, peer-to-peer, uh, style of competition to make people uh, s- well, keep well, and be more optimized. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Brad, I'm I'm very conscientious. Uh, I've overran our uh, allotted time, and uh, I highly appreciate your time. It's been very insightful. Greatly appreciate it as ever. Uh, I'll be watching uh, where Sapiens DS is going, and hopefully, uh, others listening will. I hope uh, you'll have something public as planned, and then I hope you'll be back on the show.
0: Thanks very much, Lee, and um, congratulations on the podcast and um, and all of your efforts with, with hyper being. And uh, I look forward to your future guest. and um, keep the force, my friend. Thank you very much, Brad. For more information, please see hyperwellbeing.com or follow Twitter at HyperWellbeing.